It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worser. About 600 nursing home workers are planning a one-day strike, and more could vote to join them in the coming days. We'll talk about their calls for more staffing and higher pay, and we'll hear from a union leader hoping to organize the strike across at least seven nursing homes. Entering the final days of meteorological winter, if you can believe that. Paul Hutner will join us with details on the potentially record-breaking season and the forecast ahead. We're going to meet a woman who is weaving her identity from Muslim and Ojibwe belief systems. Comedian Eli Leonard grew up in Minnesota. He's headlining this year's Twin Cities Jewish Humor Festival. We'll talk to him, and of course, we'll have the Minnesota Music Minute. And the song of the day, all of it comes your way right after the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Israel's main advocacy group against sexual assault has compiled a report about sexual violence in the Hamas attack on Israel October 7th. And United Nations experts are calling for an investigation into accounts of Israeli abuses against Palestinian women. A warning, this report contains graphic details. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. Israel's Association of Rape Crisis Centers has submitted a report to the United Nations on sexual violence committed by Hamas at a music festival in kibbutz communities and in Israeli military bases. It says it gathered confidential information from officials and testimonies from first responders and found a, quote, systematic targeted pattern of abuse, assaulting women in front of family and friends before killing them, genital mutilation, and inserting weapons inside victims' genitals. And UN Human Rights Council experts are calling for an independent investigation into what they term credible allegations of Israeli soldiers assaulting Palestinian women and girls in Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Russian state media report the mother of the late Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, is now suing to get her son's remains released to her. Russian prison officials say Navalny died last week but have not released exact cause of death. At a town hall last night, former president and 2024 candidate Donald Trump drew comparisons between himself and Navalny. Here's NPR's Stephen Fowler. Trump faces multiple court cases across multiple jurisdictions, including a civil fraud trial in New York where a judge found Trump lied about his wealth. In a South Carolina town hall with Fox News' Laura Ingram, Trump compared his situation to the late Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. It is a, a form of Navalny. It is a form of Uh, communism or fascism. Trump also said his cases, including two stemming from failed efforts to overturn the 2020 election, were political persecution, though sidestepped a question asking if he viewed himself a political prisoner. Stephen Fowler, NPR News, Atlanta. A privately owned robotic probe is on track to attempt a lunar landing tomorrow. Here's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. The probe, known as Odysseus, is circling just over 50 miles above the lunar surface. On board are several experiments for NASA, as well as some commercial payloads, including fabric from a big sportswear manufacturer. Its selected landing site is near the lunar south pole, a place that may have water in the form of ice. Getting to the moon is one thing. Landing on the moon is quite another. Jonathan McDowell with the Smithsonian Observatory. Lunar landings are not trivial. It's not that easy. Probes from Russia, Japan, Israel, and India have all tried to land on the moon, but cratered instead. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. The Dow is down 110 points. You're listening to NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Around Minnesota right now, skies are sunny. Temperatures today will be in the mid-30s to the mid-40s in the northwest, upper 40s, mid-50s in the southeast. At noon in Hibbing, it's 31. It's 45 in Rochester. And outside the Moonshine Bar and Grill in Princeton, it's 41. I'm Kathy Warzer with Minnesota News Headlines. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is planning to visit Minnesota next week. The former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor will appear Monday evening in Bloomington. It's part of a series of events Haley is planning in states that vote on March the 5th, also known as Super Tuesday. She's vowed to remain in the race, even if she loses her home state in this Saturday's primary. A Minneapolis man who attacked police during the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol faces sentencing tomorrow. Matt Sepik has more. Brian Christopher Mock is among 14 Minnesotans charged in connection with Donald Trump's last-ditch attempt to remain in power. Mock is the only Minnesota defendant to take his case to trial and was the only one to have spent time in pretrial custody. Last summer, a judge convicted the 45-year-old on all 11 counts, including assaulting police. Prosecutors say Mock pushed two officers to the ground, threw a broken flagpole at another, and pushed a fourth in the back. The government is asking a judge to send Mock to federal prison for nine years because of, quote, his pride in his behavior and his steadfast refusal to accept responsibility for the criminality of his actions. The court postponed Mock's sentencing from last month because of winter weather in Washington, D.C. I'm Matt Sepik, Minneapolis. Our top story, nursing home workers across the Twin Cities will be voting today and tomorrow to authorize a strike. They'll join around 600 workers from seven Twin Cities nursing homes who will stage a one-day strike March 5th to protest understaffed conditions, being overworked, and paid low wages. So far, striking workers include those at St. Therese Senior Living in New Hope, the Estates Nursing Homes in Excelsior, Fridley, and Roseville, the Villas at the Cedars in St. Louis Park, Serenity Humboldt in St. Paul, and the Villas in Robbinsdale. Staff at these facilities say they're burning out from taking extra shifts because of staffing shortages, and they are not getting the wages or benefits they deserve. Jamie Gully is the president of SEIU Healthcare for Minnesota and Iowa. That's the union representing these nursing home workers. Travis Berth is a union member who has worked for three years at Serenity at Humboldt Nursing Home. He currently works there as a chef and has been part of the push at the Capitol to improve conditions for nursing home workers. Jamie and Travis, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, Jamie, can I start with you? That'd be fine. Thank you. Great. Can you lay out exactly what the union is demanding of these seven nursing homes? Yes, we are demanding a $25 minimum wage from the nursing home industry, as well as health care that is affordable for our families and a retirement plan for the workers uh, to look forward to when they are done with their career in nursing homes. Why a strike for just one day? What's behind that calculus? Uh, as healthcare workers, we are we are mindful of the relationship we have with the residents in these nursing homes. Uh, we take care of them day in and day out on the weekends and on holidays, and, and for many for many of us, they they feel like family. Uh, so taking uh, the ac- taking this action to go on strike, uh, even for one day, is it's a hard decision for us to make. 
Uh, we think it's important to make that decision, however, because of the stakes and, and what's at issue. And, and what really is at issue here is that the conditions for workers in nursing homes have deteriorated such that we are we're working short, uh, we're, we're working doubles, uh, we're, we're working many days in a row, uh, workers reporting working 20, 30 days in a row, uh, and it's just not sustainable. And so we are taking this action to highlight the conditions in nursing homes and to call for change. Uh, Travis, I know you're on the line, uh, so you're working short, many of your colleagues working doubles, maybe you're doing the same thing as a chef in the kitchen there. Tell us about what's happening in your life as a, a worker in one of the nursing homes. So, yeah, one thing we are struggling in my facility is our short staffness and just not being able to keep people enough to work with us because people do end up just quitting because of payments and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm working a cook shift, but I'm also picking up server shifts. You know, I'm just kind of all over the place doing whatever I can to help out uh, the kitchen staff and just make sure that we get get stuff done. Mm -hmm. Can I ask, how much do you make an hour right now? Um, as of right now, for me, I make 20 bucks an hour. Okay. And the union's talking about $25 an hour. Um, how do you think that will help you and, and your colleagues? Will, will that uh, maybe uh, that increase perhaps attract more people to the field? Uh, for sure. Yeah, it would. Um, it would also just be able to keep people longer to work with us because right now, like servers and stuff like that are not even making 20 bucks an hour. So if we get, you know, minimum wage up to 20, 25 bucks an hour, it'll be able to keep more people in and bring more people in for us. Uh, now, Jamie, we should say that I know uh, there was a survey that was taken last fall um, at more than 100 nursing homes across the state, and that found that half make less than $20 per hour. I mean, what's what's the general wage that these workers are making? That's a great question, and it is true. 49% of workers in the industry report making less than $20 an hour, and fully 80% make less than $25 an hour. Uh, we see the, the average wages for dietary workers, housekeeping staff, linen staff, the uh, very important roles, all less than $20 an hour. Uh, nursing assistants, the average is less than $21 an hour. Uh, and these just aren't wages that are going to bring people into the industry to keep, take care of our seniors. And uh, we need fundamental change so that we can recruit people and get the staff that the residents deserve. Say, so help me out here. Last session, we were covering this issue. Um, didn't get a lot of uh, publicity, to be honest with you, but the legislature passed, I think it was $300 million in direct funding for nursing homes, $75 million. It was a lot of money for workplace incentives for bonuses and the like. Uh, there was a loan program, I believe. Is that money getting down to the workers, Jamie? It's a great question. That's uh, for many of the nursing homes. That's one-time money that's being able to be used for either wage supplements or for bonuses, uh, but it doesn't go to the core question of the bottom line. I think there is a role for the state to consider with respect to nursing home funding, but I think it's also true that many of these uh, employers are are making very very the cost for a, a resident care, they're making a lot of money also. Uh, and that money is just not getting to the workers. You see the, the costs increasing for uh, rent payments to the, to the building, to the management fees and to the executive salaries. But workers are always seem to be the last ones to get paid. And, and we are trying to fundamentally change that and demand uh, a new deal for the nursing home workers here in Minnesota. 
You know, Travis, uh, my dad was in a nursing home out in uh, northern Minnesota. I remember one worker, one guy by himself uh, on shift, and he had, oh my goodness, I think he had 10 residents he was trying to deal with. I remember him, this this picture of him pushing one resident in a wheelchair down the hall, and he was dragging a, another uh, patient in a, a wheelchair behind him, and he was trying to get him to to uh, the um, dining room, I believe, if I remember correctly. And I'm curious, you know, he just looked like he was just going back and forth trying to get these uh, residents to where they needed to go. Um, has your work environment put your safety at risk at all or residents' safety at risk at all? I mean, what are you hearing from maybe your colleagues up on the floors? Oh, I mean, I've even seen it where um, you only have like one aide per whole floor and they're trying to take care of, I want to say, maybe 30, 40 residents on the floor. And for sure, like, it's putting our health at risk. You know, people can't take care of the residents. The residents' health health are at risk. So it's, yeah, it's getting kind of dangerous. Jamie, what stories have you heard from other workers about their experiences at some of these nursing homes? Yeah, unfortunately, it's all too common for us to be working short uh, as the, the, the wages just don't, pay enough to recruit new people into the industry and to retain those who do join us. So um, unfortunately, that those shortages continue. Travis, what are you hoping for uh, when it comes to the bottom line for this strike? What do you hope will happen? Um, I just hope that, you know, the wages go up, uh, we get safer working conditions, and it all just comes down to wages. We cannot keep staffing with the wages that we have. We're not going to be able to keep people. We're not going to be able to bring new uh, employees in, and which means it's just not going to be any safer for the residents. And I just hope that the wages go up so people can take care of the residents. I don't know. I, you're probably not able to maybe see or talk to many of the uh, nursing home residents' families. Uh, and I don't know, Jamie, if you have anything to add to this, but uh, Travis, have you heard what, are, do families understand what's going on here? And are they behind you or are they a little bit worried about this strike? I can't be 100% honest with you there because I, like you said, I'm not really able to talk to the residents' families, sure. unfortunately. I wish I could, but I am hoping that they understand what's going on and they do back us in this strike. Jamie, have you heard anything? Uh, agree with everything Travis said. So we are not uh, enlisting, you know, residents uh, into our dispute with the employers with respect to our contracts. But we are hopeful and believe that we will have the support of residents and families. Uh, they know that our working conditions are the living conditions for the people that we care for. And uh, when things go better for the nursing assistants and for the LPNs and for all the people doing the care day in and day out, that's going to result in better care for their family members and their loved ones. So it's, it's going to be a one-day strike, but uh, we hope to make a big difference moving forward every day in the future. I asked Travis this question. I'll ask you this too, Jamie. Um, seven strikes at once, that is, a, is that what the, one of the biggest job actions against nursing homes in state history, I think, right? So um, bottom line here, what do you want to have happen at the end of this one-day strike? Great question. And it, yesterday we announced seven nursing homes going on strike. Um, that number is up to 10 nursing homes today with 750 nursing homes altogether now committing to go on strike on March 5th. Uh, our hope is that our message will get out and that we'll get the support that we need to raise wages and make a difference for the caregivers. Gosh, I, I think you also mentioned in this news conference yesterday that there's this larger theme of labor groups throughout the state working together. Um, 
I believe unions covering nearly 15,000 workers are authorizing strike votes and actions are planned to, you have your action and there are some other things happening out there, high rents, that kind of thing. Um, all these unions are working together. Uh, has that happened before? I don't believe it has. Uh, we did notice uh, a while ago, more than a year ago, that many of us had contracts that were expiring at the same time. And so we started trying to imagine what we could accomplish if we lifted up our voices at the same time. And so it will be uh, that first week of March. Uh, I think you might see activity from other unions taking similar, making similar decisions. But uh, for nursing homes, we give a 10-day notice to our employers to make sure that there is continuity of care for the residents during our action. Um, so we're, I think, first out of the gate for getting that notice out to the public. All right. Jamie and Travis, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. We've been talking to Jamie Gully, the president of SEIU Healthcare for Minnesota and Iowa. Travis Berth has been with us. He is an SEIU Healthcare Union member and a worker at the Humboldt Nursing Home. Now, we want you to know we reached out to the leaders of the nursing homes with workers striking for this story and didn't hear back with comments by the time of this interview. Time for some music. Today's Minnesota Music Minute comes from Minneapolis electro soul group Soul Flower. This is their song Passion, their new band with two singles out right now. Minnesota Now here on MPR News. I'm Kathy Warzer. As an Ojibwe woman with Muslim faith, Megan Kalk is a minority within a minority. The 31-year-old from St. Cloud has spent the past 15 years discovering the intersections between these two identities in her own life. Megan's story was the focus of a recent Sahan Journal article that intrigued us, so we have called up Megan Kalk. Welcome to the program, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here. The obvious first question that pops into my head is, what drew you to Islam? Did you seek it out? So for me, exploring faiths um, in my family was a very normal thing. Um, I had, you know, uh, my dad grew up Roman Catholic, as a lot of Native Americans from the mid-20th century do. So um, he grew up Roman Catholic and also um, with those tribal traditions. And then I had a Southern Baptist mother who grew up uh, who started dabbling in some new age religion um, stuff. So I would say that kind of um, the, my parents kind of dabbling in different religions was something that kind of inspired me to look around for what was important to me. Um, so I would say around 16, um, just kind of reading, I, I just read about, about every religion that was out there in the world. Um, so I just, I kept coming back to Islam because of the simplicity of it. And as I got older, I've kind of started to integrate both my tribal beliefs and Islam together. 
Mm. So you have a background of seeking and exploring in your family. I'm wondering, what are the connections between Islam and Ojibwe beliefs? So I would say the the main connection is that both of them believe in a in a single a single God that kind of controls everything. Um, one really interesting thing that I like that is a parallel between a lot of Native Native American beliefs and Islam is environmentalism. I think we see it might be considered a stereotype that Native Americans are very environmentalist, but in a lot of their cultures, the environment is very important. A lot of people don't know that in Islam, the environment is also very important. So um, I, the strong environmentalism in both of them is another crossover. Um, taking care of the earth um, is, is something that really kind of also drew me to Islam and was kind of some of the first things that allowed me, allowed me to start drawing those connections. Mm-hmm. So some connections, uh, any conflicts between the two? Yeah, I would say there's there's a lot of conflicts. Um, in Islam, God is more kind of involved in your life, kind of watching everything you're doing. Um, in, in the Ojibwe religion, God is there, but he's he, he's a little more detached, I would say. Not not detached, but it, it's it's a bit different than the Abrahamic religions where you know, God is kind of watching your every move. Um, a big conflict and one of the most visible things about the Islamic religion for women is the hijab, which is very, um, it can be, um, it, can, it can be very in conflict with um, the, the Ojibwe religion. Um, so in the Ojibwe religion, you know, your hair is considered an extension of your soul. It's considered um, sacred. So to display your hair is to, be proud of yourself and to be br- proud of your culture. In Islam, it's a sign of modesty to, to cover your hair. Um, so the hijab um, has been a very comp, you know, it's it's very, provide. It's, it's a lot of conflict, I would say. Um, so for me, I would say you would probably call me a part-time hijabi. Um, there are times where I don't wear it um, for certain, I guess, tribal um, cultural events on on my reservation where I'm from, the Malax Indian Reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so for funerals um, and certain kind of uh, sweat lodge, I wouldn't wear something like that. Um, it, it tends to, I would say the older generation can be a little bit more offended by it. Um, so it's one thing I kind of try to keep separate. What's been the reaction from the Ojibwe community when they learn about your Muslim beliefs? And vice um, versa, say, for that matter, and vice versa. Yeah, I, I would say for the Ojibwe community, um, you know, for Native American communities, they've been kind of being destroyed for the past two centuries in some way or another. Um, for our for our um, reservation, we weren't allowed to do any hunting, gathering, um, anything like that until like the 80s or 90s. Um, and kind of do our traditional things. So kind of anything that was foreign, we're kind of, anything that was foreign, whether that was Catholicism or anything European way of doing things was kind of like, not necessarily shunned, but if it was, if it was in conflict, it was, it was kind of shunned. So I would say it's been a little more difficult with the Native American community, especially as we're in an age of trying to revitalize our culture. We're trying to preserve our language, our culture. So Islam 
in some ways represents all of those things that came across the Atlantic Ocean that destroyed the cultures as over the years. So I would say it's been a little bit more difficult finding acceptance within the Native American community than it has been with the Muslim community. The Muslim community has always been very welcoming, um, to, I guess, to anybody because Islam is a very, um, it's a faith that, um, I guess I would say it, it encourages conversion of people. So therefore they welcome converts of any background. Um, mm -hmm. However, I know that there are things about that I would do in my Ojibwe religion that would be of conflict. So certain, um, certain tribal things, certain tribal rituals would probably be in conflict with Islam. Um, for example, I'll just give the example of the Ojibwe prayer. We use, um, we take tobacco and we go and put it out under a tree and we say a prayer. So that tobacco, using that tobacco as kind of like a, an in-between as a prayer is something that is, is not allowed in Islam, but it's something that it's important to me to preserve. So I guess I'm not, I will never find total acceptance, I think, in either one of them, but that's okay with me because there's always a subsection in each of those groups that will accept you for what you do. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm listening to you talk, and it sounds like, and I've never met you before until today, that you found maybe you're living your authentic self because you do have your feet in both of these worlds, and you feel, it sounds like you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. It took many years of trying to feel comfortable. It took, you know, how do I, I mean, if we talk about Islam, Islam looks different from country to country. It looks different in Morocco than it does in India. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that the clothing and the, the foods that people eat. And in my early years of becoming a Muslim, it was like, what what is the community around me, which was particularly the Somali community here in Minnesota? And is that what Islam is? And is that what I have to conform to? And for many years, it was trying to conform to that, that way of dress, um, eating those foods. And then I kind of started to realize, you know, that Islam is very diverse, not only throughout cultures, but throughout throughout the hundreds of years that it's been around, Islam has evolved in different communities in different places around the world, different customs. Um, so I would say it has taken some time to find my authentic way and practicing of both of those. Um, but I have found it. I, I have found it. It's taken a long time, um, but it's doable. Final question for you before we go. I know you have a daughter. Are you raising her with both beliefs, both belief sets? I am raising her with both belief belief sets, um, but I would not say that I'm pushing one or the other onto her. Um, so if she kind of follows the same path that I did, you know, at, at 18, kind of exploring religions and trying to find out what works for her, that's just fine with me. Although I would like her to remember where her roots and where she came from. Um, so I would like her to go up to the reservation and continue to do wild racing and continue to do sweat lodges and continue to do, uh, you know, fishing and and all of those traditional activities. Also to remember her Islamic, you know, the whole reason she was born, the whole reason she was alive, is alive today is because I converted to Islam. If I did not convert to Islam, I would not have her today. So mm. I would like her to remember her roots. All right. Interesting conversation, Megan. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, thank you so much. Megan Kulk's been with us. 
sharing how she combines her Ojibwe and Muslim identities. You can read more about her story, by the way, at sahanjournal.com. Programming supported by Carlson Capital Management, an integrated wealth management firm with one key responsibility, serving as financial stewards, helping clients use their wealth to accomplish their goals. Employee-owned and Minnesota-based. Connect with a fiduciary advisor at carlsoncap.com. I love high school hockey. Girls State High School Hockey Tournament going on right now, Class 1A quarterfinals. The smaller schools playing right now, number two ranked Orno against Wilmer. And looking at the score... 3-1 3-1 in favor of the Orono Spartans against the Wilmer Cardinals. It's uh, going to be a really great few days of hockey at the X in downtown St. Paul. Coming up next, a look at news with Emily Reese. Emily? Hi, Kathy. Israeli strikes in Gaza killed at least 67 Palestinians overnight. The aid group Doctors Without Borders says two people were killed when a shelter housing staff in the Gaza Strip was struck in an area where Palestinians had been told to seek shelter. Other Israeli strikes killed two in Syria's capital, Damascus. And in Lebanon, state media and security officials said an Israeli airstrike killed two people there. That attack triggered retaliation from the militant Hezbollah group. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is fighting extradition to the United States from the U.K. Lawyers for the U.S. government want Assange to face espionage charges here. Federal lawyers spoke at Britain's high court, saying Assange put put lives at risk and went beyond journalism in his bid to solicit, steal, and indiscriminately publish classified government documents. Assange's lawyers have argued that U.S. authorities want to punish him for WikiLeaks' exposure of military wrongdoing. A decision isn't expected until March at the earliest. A private U.S. lunar lander is in orbit around the moon a day before it will attempt to land on the surface. Intuitive Machines spacecraft reached the moon today. It launched last week under a NASA program to kickstart the lunar economy. Tomorrow, flight controllers in Houston will lower the spacecraft's orbit and attempt a landing near the moon's south pole. It's a dicey place to land with craters and cliffs. Another U.S. company tried to send a lander to the moon last month, but it never got there because of a fuel leak. The U.S. Coast Guard has a new mission in Puget Sound, a pilot program to alert vessels of whale sightings. The program helps to keep the giant marine animals safe from boat strikes and noise in the highly used inland waters of Washington State. Sightings of orcas, baleen, and humpback whales have increased as their populations rebound. The alerts will go to all commercial and transit vessels. And Kathy, here are some Puget Sound orca facts I learned from the Associated Press. There are two groups of killer whales that frequent the Puget Sound area, and they eat different things. One group eats salmon, the other group eats sea mammals. There you go. I, the things you learn in this program. Right? Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. It's 1230 on a Wednesday. A Wednesday, Minnesota Now. After a couple of days of weather that actually felt like winter, we're going to go back to temperatures well above average across the state. And where it snowed last week, the evidence is quickly fading into memory. What the heck is going on? NPR's chief meteorologist, Paul Hutner, joins us to talk about it. Well, um, it was nice while it lasted, that snow. Yeah. <laughs> It, it was pretty. <laughs> it was pretty, yeah. So how close are I, I think we're, we're really close to wrapping up meteorological winter, right? Um, yes. I'm assuming we're going to break all kinds of records. 
We are. It's it's off the charts, Kathy. A broken winter this year. You know, this is like Tulsa. We've been running 13 to 14 degrees warmer than average this meteorological winter, which began December 1st. And climatologically speaking, that's about the winter in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So welcome to Tulsa this winter. Oh. Uh, temperatures 13, 14 degrees warmer than average. And the Midwest Regional Climate Center keeps track of the numbers, and they have this gauge called the Accumulated Winter Season Severity Index. It, it assigns points for cold and snow. And in an average winter, we would have 930 points in the Twin Cities by now. We have 330 this year. It's by far the lowest on record. Last year, we had 1039, just for a gauge, some perspective. And really, most of Minnesota is now and will come in with the number one warmest rank for winter this season. Parts of southwest Minnesota might come in second place, uh, and it looks like we're going to stay mainly 10 to 20 degrees warmer than average through the end of February, which ends, of course, the end of next week. Uh, we're already 46 in the Twin Cities. We could hit 50 today. We may hit 50s again next week. Uh, you know, I feel for the resorts, Kathy, up north that depend mm-hmm. on that winter business this year. I guess if you're a snowplower that gets paid by the season, you're feeling pretty good. Uh, what do we say? There's really no bad weather, different kinds of good weather, but people are, are being impacted by this winter. You know, I don't mean to disrespect Tulsa or Oklahoma. They're fine places, but sure. we're Minnesota. So, you know, it just, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I'm wondering, now the rest of this week and into the weekend, we're just going to keep getting, well, we have a little bit of a dip on Friday, I understand, but uh, we go into what, 50s and even next week, 60s? Is that right? Maybe, yes. You nailed the trend. Uh, We're 46 right now in the Twin Cities. I think we'll hit 50 today. Tomorrow, a little cooler, 45. 33, that dip you talked about, comes Friday with a bit of a cool front. And then we warm right back up again, Kathy. Southwest winds kick in Saturday, Sunday. 47 Saturday in the Twin Cities. 50 or close to it on Sunday. And it looks like we'll be in the 50s Monday and Tuesday before another cold front comes through later next week. So maybe the last two days of February, a little cooler. But I'm looking at the models into the first week of March, and they're saying maybe 50s, maybe 60 then. Mm. So we're going to close out this winter. We're already far enough ahead that this will end up as the warmest winter on record. You know what really worries me? Um, The dryness, right? I mean, we we went into the season kind of droughty, and we just haven't had the snow. So I'm, I'm kind of concerned about another flash drought. Should I be? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the soils are already drier than average in southeast Minnesota and through much of the Midwest, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana. Uh, If we don't get a rainy spring or at least average uh, precipitation through the spring, we could go back into flash drought. We've done that the last three years, as you know, Kathy. We need those regular rains, and I'm not only worried about the soils for farmers, I'm worried about the fire danger, especially later this spring as we get into summer. Grass fire in the spring and forest fires later in the summer. So uh, it's it's part joy and dread, I guess, that we get an, uh, hopefully a, a nice spring this year. But we really need that moisture to keep uh, keep the soils uh, wet as we head into the planting season. You know, just a little heads up. Uh, I don't know if you heard this. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, had a fascinating story about the Canadian wildfires, which caused all the smoke that really bedeviled us last year. Those those wildfires have been just smoldering. They've not gone out. And so they're kind of worried about what will, what will happen because they too haven't had a, a whole lot of moisture. Um, I have about a minute left. Say, before we go, we should probably talk about the climate cast. What's going on this week? Yeah. You know, uh, climate scientist Michael Mann, he's a famous climate scientist. He uh, sued 
some conservative bloggers who uh, he claimed defamed him, and he won the suit, a million-dollar lawsuit judgment. Uh, it has implications, potentially, for how people can criticize climate scientists. So we'll talk about that on ClimateCast tomorrow. Interesting, as always. Okay, I hope you have a good day today. You too. Great to talk with you, Kathy. Thanks. As always, it's great to talk with you too. Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner has been with us. By the way, you can hear ClimateCast Thursday afternoons and All Things Considered. And always, you can find detailed weather updates on the Updraft blog. That's at mprnews.org. It's 1235 here in Minnesota now. Say we were talking about water and drought there. We've heard from some listeners that this warm winter is fueling anxieties about climate change. Now, this next story you're going to hear comes from someone who can relate. It's part of the Minnesota Humanities Center's We Are Water Project. My name is Michael Anderson, and I am a Mississippi River rat. (laughs) Currently, I guide people on kayaks, kayak tours in the flooded forests of the Driftless region, just south of Lake Pepin. It was my freshman year of college at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities here. I was a biology degree-seeking student at the time, and Every single lecture and class discussion, um, slideshows, the PowerPoints, it was all about this ecological destruction and devastation at the hands of, of human beings. And it was depressing. Yeah, it didn't make me want to get out of bed. And I didn't for many, many days. And eventually was brought, uh, went with a friend and my mom actually to uh, the health clinic at the U of M. And the topic of this mindfulness-based stress reduction course was introduced. That kind of brought into my life this walking meditation. We would meet for a few hours once a week in a group and practice these techniques. And from there, it was, you know, you were supposed to go out on your own and just kind of keep practicing. It was literally left foot after right foot, left foot after right foot, feeling, you know, from heel to toe and monitoring my, my breath. So I I kind of took that walking meditation technique and went down to the Mississippi River in the heart of winter. This sort of desolate, cold, uninviting environment just seemed to match my internal landscape at the time. And just kept practicing, kept staying with it, watching the water, watching the icicles melting on the bluff banks. Just at the U of M campus there, there's 30-foot icicles that sort of gather and accumulate on the bluffs. It's a sight to behold. I started just kind of relaxing out of that winter and depression, and the river just worked its magic. The birds starting to come back, and the ice starting to break, the water starting to flow, the eagles chirping, you know, it really wrapped me in, and I was hooked. I haven't been off the river for more than a week or next to the river since then. It's been definitely a strong anchor in my life. That was Michael Anderson. His story is part of the Minnesota Humanities Center's We Are Water Project. It's a partnership with the state of Minnesota and the Minnesota Historical Society. Funding is provided in part by the Clean Water Fund of the Legacy Amendment. You can find more water stories online if you search We Are Water MN. Flava Cafe in St. Paul may be Frogtown's first black-owned coffee shop. The cafe and community hub has been open for almost two years. And as Sarah Tamer shows us, coffee is not the only thing brewing. 
It's midday in St. Paul's bustling Frogtown neighborhood, a community with a vibrant mosaic of Black, Asian, and Latin American neighbors, and nestled on the corner of University and Dale. Large Marley for here. Is Flava Cafe. It's been captivating hearts and taste buds alike since it first opened its doors in 2022. Almost everyone who comes in knows Shawnee Grigsby, founder and owner of the coffee shop. And that's really what I wanted to create. Um, like a, some people who know me personally have been to my home. They're like, Shawnee, this looks like your living room. <laughs> I'm just like, I knew like if I'm going to be spending 12, 13 hours a day in a place, I needed to feel like home. And home is exactly what it feels like for customers like Maria Vallejo. It's a sacred and safe space. From the music to the art on the walls and the books that hold bookmarks of frequent visitors, every bit of Flava Cafe is intentional. The coffees are named after famous Black artists and thinkers. Bell Hooks without milk. The Bell Hooks honors the trailblazing feminist, author, and poet, and it's made with espresso, brown sugar, maple syrup, and cinnamon. When I think of Bell Hooks, I think of just like, like the sweetest hug from like one of your favorite aunties <laughs> who is just like a badass and like someone who's like a positive role model. Grigsby says the space embodies parts of black culture. So I wanted to like highlight our shows and our artists and you know our authors um, and scholars and things of that nature to make sure like we know like, this is, this is ours, this is for us. Her goal is for people to feel like they're on an episode of 90s sitcoms Moesha or Living Single. I want to create a space where young people feel like they can come because it's relatable and it's, like, not just for adults. Opening a coffee shop was something Grigsby thought she'd do much later in life. The 32-year-old Detroit native went to school for sociology and earned a master's degree in youth development. She considered starting up an arts center. But when an opportunity with the Neighborhood Development Center came along, Flava Cafe was born. Mike Tamale is the founder of the Neighborhood Development Center and says since its founding, the organization's mission is to help entrepreneurs like Grigsby start businesses in their own neighborhoods. And our whole idea is that that grows then uh, exponentially, really, that, that people in these neighborhoods start seeing their own faces, their own culture, their own family uh, behind the counter in an ownership position and say, well, we can do that too. Beyond the beans, Grigsby pours into her community. She partners with local organizations hired and right track to employ youth who have limited work experience and connect them with resources. In many cases, she's a boss who doubles as a mentor and life coach. Just ask 19-year-olds May Pa and Annika Leafbled, who both work at the coffee shop, and say Grigsby taught them to advocate for themselves. Especially growing into being an adult and how to do that in like adult spaces. She's definitely taught me a lot about that. For me, it's definitely like do what you want to do and don't care about what other people, you know, has to say or what they have to think. Just go out there, you know, just do it. Grigsby says she'd like to eventually explore a cooperative model for Flava Cafe, where community and employees can have some ownership of the space. She hopes so long as the coffee beans are brewing, Flava Cafe is grounds for endless opportunities. I think if, you know, all young people have someone in their lives who they can connect with on those levels, like, the world would be a better place. <laughs> Sarah Tamer, NPR News, Frogtown.
programming is supported by Great River Energy, a not-for-profit wholesale electric power cooperative providing 27 Minnesota member co-ops with reliable, affordable, and cleaner electricity. More at greatriverenergy.com. Tomorrow night, the annual Twin Cities Jewish Humor Festival will begin with its celebration of comedy and resiliency in Minnesota's Jewish community. Headlining the festival is Minnesota-raised stand-up comedian Eli Leonard with his show called Good Showbiz. It's all about the history of Jewish showmanship, and he's on the line right now to talk about it. Eli, thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm curious, uh, what or who shaped your sense of what's funny when you were growing up in Minnesota? Wow, okay. Well, I think the people who made me laugh most were my older brothers. But other than that, you know, I think Mel Brooks, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, some of the great Jewish comedians of the past, um, and Rodney Dangerfield, you know, just some, uh, I, I watch the greats just like the rest of us, you know. Yeah. Oh, and you know, they were so funny. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but did you look up to any one comedian that you thought you might want to pattern yourself after or not? Um, I guess I didn't really consider that comedy would be a job. I didn't think that it could be done when I was a kid. So I wasn't looking for someone to emulate in that way. You know, I didn't think that it was something that someone could just do with their lives. I just watched it and laughed. Um, Uh But I definitely drew a lot of inspiration from uh, Seinfeld and Larry David. And I want to ask about Larry here in a couple of minutes. I bet your parents probably did not see you as a professional comedian. As a kid? Yeah. Yeah, no, they didn't see me that. I mean, they they thought I was funny, but they didn't think that I, you know, they wanted me probably to go into business or or to be a doctor. I mean, I think doctor was really pushed on me. I was, my grandpa especially would push me into being a doctor, Dr. Stan Leonard, um, great pediatrician, you know, but yeah, I was not pushed to be a stand-up comedian at all. <laughs> Help me out here. Uh, why do you think comedy is such a central part of Jewish culture? What's, what's the source of the Jewish sense of humor? Is it nature or nurture? Oh, I, it's got to be nature at this point. I mean, I think for a while it was nurture, but now it's just so ingrained in us. I think it's really, um, I, I think the combination of uh, rules having to follow rules and finding the absurdity in the laws of Judaism. And then, um, unfortunately, the strife of the plight of the people that has um, sort of forced the, the religion and the people of the religion to have to find some sort of relief from the horrors of, um, you know, constantly being kicked out and expelled from various lands. I'm I'm wondering, uh, going back here to Larry Jacobs, uh, uh, he was uh, you, you were you were his assistant on on um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Is that right? Yeah, Am yeah, right Larry, David, years? yeah. Larry David. Larry yeah. David. Larry David. I'm sorry, I can really tell yeah. I've not slept. So you were with <laughs> okay, him. <laughs> Good. Um, you even appeared on the show, I believe. What'd you learn from being with him? He is amazing. Yeah. So I worked for him for three years. Um, for him and his executive producer Jeff Schaefer and Laura Stryker, and they were making Curb Your Enthusiasm at the time, and I was their assistant. And, you know, I learned when I started working there that this is someone who has, you know, nothing 
to win by continuing to make a show, but um, still comes into work every single day and works honestly harder than anyone I've ever seen work. So um, that type of, you know, you know, sort of um, respect for the job is what I learned from him. Um, and then, you know, over time I started to, I was just getting him lunch. You know, my whole job was just to get Larry David lunch and his, his office, the people in his office, uh, get them their food. But when I would drop it off, I would start to, you know, show my personality a little bit. And then over time he started to take to me a bit and, um, he offered me, uh, to write for the show, um, write storylines for the show. And then, oh, wow. you know, any ideas that they took, they would pay me for were you, did you have a chance to be in the writer's room for the show? Yeah, I mean, the writer's room, that was just the office. I, that's where I worked. I worked in the in the writer's office. It's really just mm -hmm. Larry David and Jeff Schaefer who sit oh. in there. You know, it's just a two-man oh, operation. It's not some, you know, we think of these writer's rooms on sitcoms as these big rooms. And I think it was that yeah. way on, on, on Seinfeld. But for this show, it's just such a well-oiled machine between the two people, you know. And it's really, you know, Larry's mind um, at work and... He just sits down with a pad of paper still and writes writes the show out. Yeah. Talk about pressure, though, working with Larry David. Oh, my gosh. But and I, I understand you were doing improv and some sketch comedy in L.A. during that time, too. I was, yeah. I mean, I sort of had to keep it a secret, you know, from him. I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't a well-kept secret, but, you know, I didn't want to come to be an assistant for somebody and then be like, you know, I want to do what you do. You know, that's not really a good way to keep a job. Um, so I, <laughs> no. I was doing a lot of stage work at the time, too. But I, I didn't um, I didn't mention it so much. You know, I tried. But I, you know, I let myself have a few moments to try to make him laugh. But, um, yeah, I was doing that at the time. And I still yeah, obviously, I still do that. So what about being on the stage excites you and electrifies you? Because it would scare the bejesus out of me if I were to do something like that. I mean, it scares me, too. I think that must be it. I, I must have, be a glutton for some sort of humiliation or punishment. Um, I, I really am. I don't know. I, I, I think the immediacy of feedback and the joy that it brings me to make myself laugh to make others laugh it really I mean that's really what it is it's it's not and then you know now it's not just the rush of performance but it is um really seeing people connect to the work and um you know sometimes getting good feedback I like that too I, I like when after a show someone will come up to me and say that was good so that's a reason to do it too um yes. I'll tell you what I'm not I'm not in this for the money there's definitely not a significant um, chunk in the game for uh, for an upstart, you know, a rising comedian. I have heard that from other comedians, yeah. too. Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, by the way, I want to hear more about the show you're performing this weekend because I want people to come out and see you and the and all the yeah. other folks that are that are participating. Um, you you talk about the business of performing as a Jewish person. Is that right? That's that's what my show is about. Yeah, my my show is called Good Showbiz, and I'm um, the, you know it's a show that celebrates the history of show business. You know through various forms of performance. You know dance, comedy, music, dramatic monologue, and it's all through the lens of the you know through the Jewish experience, and um, it's reliant on the audience to create the show. So I you know, throughout the show, I essentially give 
people in the audience who are willing jobs and show business to help me put the show on. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I mean, I, they get paid. They get paid. They get paid real, real money. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm, no, okay. I'm, I mean, you know, maybe I'm spoiling the show a little bit, but no, I'm not kidding at all. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's creative, so when I but say it's there's different. Not money in, yeah. Yeah. I said there's not <laughs> money involved, but it's because I'm, I'm willfully giving it away. <laughs> I, I like the concept, though. I like the concept. I also understand yeah. it, you have a more dramatic monologue. Is that right? At the at the very end? Yeah, at the end, I do a, a dramatic monologue from, you know, from Shakespeare. And, you know, it is through sort of, a, you know, I play like a game with it. You know, I'm, I, I do um, a game where I, I try not to get laughs doing it. Um, again, I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm spoiling the show a little bit, but I think you can still enjoy it and know exactly what's going to happen because. Um, it does take different turns, no matter what the the audience um, brings to the show. So yeah, I do I do a dramatic monologue at the end, and that's sort of the the crest and the the end of the show. Um, you know, it's weird to do a dramatic monologue at a comedy show, but I yes. think it's very funny. Good, <laughs> and there are other performances during this Jewish humor festival besides yours, of course. Do you know anybody else that you're going to be with that you've seen before and you want to talk about? Um, I guess I know that there's a, a queer Jewish show um, with Antonia Lasser, I think is her name. And I, oh, I don't, I'm familiar with her stuff, but I don't, um, I don't know when it is or anything like that. You can find all that on the Minnesota JCC website. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure all the other acts, um, but there's I, a lot of, you know. But there's a lot of great yeah. ones. They really, they're yeah, really there are. are. Now, before you go, um, what comics excite you right now? Who are you watching? Oh wow! I mean, <laughs> I you know I I I would say, uh, 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 it's hard. I, I don't I don't like to. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's tough to 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 draw this into one or two people. Um, you know, people in the public right now that excite me are Bo Burnham and and uh, Rory Scovel and Kate Berlant, people like that. Um, mm -hmm. More in the alt comedy scene. Thank you. And I'm glad you're back doing a performance. And thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Twin Cities Jewish Humor Festival on Thursday night, 730. You got it. At the Minneapolis Jewish yeah. Community Center. That's Eli Leonard. By the way, you can find out more. He mentioned this by going to minnesotajcc.org. Great to talk with Eli okay. Leonard. Thank you. Thank you. Did this go well? Best of luck. Okay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Thank you, Eli. Well, it's been quite a show. We uh, have a lot on this show. We've packed it full, talking at the very beginning about the nursing home strike, ending it with comedian Eli Leonard in between. All kinds of good stuff. Thanks for being with us, by the way. Around the region today, if you have an opportunity to enjoy the day, not bad weather-wise with temperatures in the 30s and 40s, 44 degrees in St. Cloud, 45 in Brainerd right now. It's 48 in Worthington. Thanks for being with us here on MPR News.